If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I told you last Sunday that the plan was to begin Exodus today, but I changed my mind. We were either going to be rushed to introduce Exodus or rushed in our celebration of the Lord's table, and I didn't want us to be rushed in anything. So we're going to spend all of this morning's teaching time uh, talking about the Lord's Supper and its significance in our life, and then at the close of our teaching time, we will observe the Lord's table together. I want to say something about that. One, both of the ordinances that we celebrate as a church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are teaching ordinances. So they're not add-ons to the preaching and teaching time. They are a fundamental part of the teaching and the preaching time. In baptism, which we'll do everything that we can to keep before you as often as we can, and we've made some plans and scheduling for baptism and the celebration of the Lord's table, uh, we're in a groove now. It takes a little time for the new preacher to sort of get some calendar things addressed, but we'll, we'll see baptism more often than what we have, and we'll see the Lord's Supper celebrated more often than we have because they are teaching ordinances. In baptism, we are celebrating and we are teaching about the gospel of saving grace. When a person is baptized, they are celebrating or exhibiting outwardly what God has done invisibly in their life. What you can't see the gospel doing in them is acted out or dramatized in believer's baptism. So that the person comes to act out two parts in the drama. They act out their own part, that the old person has died and been buried. That's how the water functions in baptism. Baptism is really not about symbolizing washing our sins away. The water is the grave. So the person dies and they are buried. The old man dies and then they're raised forth from the water, symbolizing or acting out that we have been raised to walk in the newness of life by resurrection power. Did you know that the Bible says that all of us who have believed on Jesus have abiding in us the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave? That power lives in us. And that is demonstrated or symbolized in believers' baptism. They're also acting out the part of Jesus. It is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that makes our death, burial, and resurrection a reality. We have newness of life because we have been, by faith, joined with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death and burial and resurrection. So that we who were dead in our sins and trespasses have been made alive in Christ Jesus by his death, burial, and resurrection. In baptism, we celebrate saving grace. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is a little different. Rather than the focus being exclusively on saving grace, in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate sanctifying grace. We celebrate sustaining grace. And I hope you know that we need the grace of the gospel, not just at the beginning of our walk with Christ, but at every point along the way. There is never a moment in our life, no matter how self-righteous you may be feeling today, when you do not desperately need the sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He has saved us, and through the work of His Spirit, He is keeping us. So as we take the bread and the cup, we are reminding ourselves of the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior that was able to save us in the beginning and that sustains us at this very moment. We celebrate saving grace in baptism. We celebrate sanctifying and sustaining grace in the Lord's Supper. So I want you to think in terms of what the Lord's Supper communicates and how it teaches. What I'd like for us to do now is to read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, and then move quickly through some observations of those verses. And then I'm going to give you three questions and a series of answers to close our time. And then we'll punctuate our teaching by the taking of the bread and the cup. If you found your way there, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says, Now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. Now, you probably picked this up already, but Paul is addressing issues with the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. And that's the platform for so much of what he says here. In verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you'll not come under judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his words. You may be seated. There are issues in the Corinthian church when it comes to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In fact, if you're familiar with 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know that there are issues with the church in Corinth just in general. If we ever go through a bad season at Longview Point, you get down on the way things are, just read 1 and 2 Corinthians and be encouraged. I can't imagine it will ever get that bad. 
One of the major issues in the Corinthian church is that there are factions, there are divisions. In fact, there's four major divisions in the church. There are those who say we were converted under the preaching and ministry of Paul, so we're over here in this corner of the church. And then there are those who say, but we were converted under the ministry of Peter, so we're over here in this corner of the church. And then there are those who came to faith under the preaching of Apollos, who seemed to be the most charismatic preacher of the group, and they got together in this corner of the church. And then there were the super saints, the most spiritual of them all. They were over here, and they said, we're just of Jesus. There are factions everywhere in the church for a variety of different reasons. There's sort of a, a hierarchy in the culture of Corinth that probably contributed to that. They couldn't divorce themselves from the culture of Corinth as they came into the church. And then there are so many members of the Corinthian church, it seems, that came from the lowest rungs of the social ladder that now they finally have a place they can distinguish themselves. Still works that way in the world. You take people who can't push their weight in the world, they'll come to the church. And they'll prey upon the grace of believers pushing their way around from time to time. This can be a real issue. It was an issue in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, the problem with your celebration of the Lord's Supper is that not only are you celebrating the Lord's table while divisions exist among you, but the Lord's Supper celebration is actually being used to cement these divisions. Now, if you think through the processes of our celebrating the Lord's Supper and so much of what Paul says here, some things that may seem a little silly may begin to make some sense. Like the fact that when we distribute the bread and the cup in a little while, you'll all receive them at the same time, and we will all take of the bread and we'll take of the cup at the same time. In the Corinthian church, what was happening is the favorite members got to go first. There's another feature here. There's a lot larger meal being consumed than what we're consuming here. Paul said, if you're hungry, eat at home. So the typical reaction to that is to overreact against that, and you'll get microscopic portions of the elements as we partake of the bread and the cup this morning. But again, in response to the issues in the church of Corinth, and out of a sense of, of real caution and concern, that we observe the Lord's table in a way that is worthy, in a way that honors the body and the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. The divisions that existed among them were, were a real issue, and Paul chastises them for the presence of those divisions. We'll, we'll talk in a few moments about what you need to do about who can come to the Lord's table, but it's, it's fitting to say here, if, if you are a person harboring bitterness, hostility, or even hatred in your heart this morning, it would not be safe for you to partake of the bread and the cup without confessing that sin and having a real turn of heart regarding your bitterness or hostility. Paul warns them, he warns them severely that because of this bitterness, because of these factions and many other sins, that their coming to the Lord's table compromises their health and even their mortal life. In verses 23 and following, Paul begins to sort of outline how the observation of the Lord's Supper should really look. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Matthew 26, Jesus has sent the disciples ahead and he says, Go and prepare the upper room, a designated place for our celebration of the Passover. The Passover meal is instituted as a remembrance in the Old Testament, in fact, in the book of Exodus, which we'll be studying over the next several weeks and months. There, as the plagues of God came against the nation of Egypt, it comes down to the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And God says, the firstborn of every family, the firstborn male of every home, is going to die when the death angel of God passes over. But in order to be kept, in order to be protected from the coming judgment of God, the people of Israel were instructed to, to slay a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes so that when the death angel passed over, bringing the judgment of God against Egypt, it could recognize the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the home and the Israelite homes would be untouched by the judgment of God. They were within the home to eat the lamb and unleavened bread a reminder of the death necessary for their salvation, the unleavened bread, a reminder of the urgency with which God would take them out in the Exodus event, lead them into the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. And so it was for thousands of years, the death of that lamb was a reminder, the consumption of that lamb and unleavened bread was a reminder of the death necessary for their salvation for the Exodus event in Israel's history. And so as Jesus gathers the disciples in the upper room, he revolutionizes the Passover celebration. And he says to them, the, the bread and the cup, which once served as a reminder of the death of an actual lamb, the shedding of whose blood was necessary for your salvation in Egypt, is now going to serve as a reminder, as a memorial to you, of the death of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The very real, literal death of God's only begotten Son, the Lamb of God who come to take the sin of the world away. This bread, this cup, will remind you no more of the Exodus event, your deliverance from bondage in Egypt, but your deliverance from sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He says, now you take this bread and you drink this cup in remembrance of me and you honor this celebration until I come again to receive you to myself, to cleanse and to claim forevermore what is mine in his church. This is the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this is my body. This is for you. Now take and eat in remembrance of me. Drink the cup. Cup made of the blood of the new covenant, shed for many for the remission of sin, take and drink in remembrance of me. Now, all of this, this celebration itself necessitates self-examination. In verses 27 and following, Paul cautions the church as to how they're to come to the table. He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself, and this way he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have 
fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. So what what Paul says is the reason that you have some sick people in your church, Corinthian church, and the reason some of your members are dead is because they've come to the Lord's table in an unworthy way. Y'all tracking with me? So coming to the Lord's table worthily, honoring the celebration of the Lord's Supper is, is of tremendous importance. This is one of the most severe warnings of judgment in, in the New Testament. In fact, in my estimation, it is the most severe warning of, of urgent, immediate judgment in the New Testament. We are to examine ourselves before coming to the Lord's table. And Paul says, if we are rightly evaluating ourselves, if we are personally making judgment about our life, addressing the issues that come up in our self-evaluation, making confession of our sin before God, it saves us coming under the analysis of God, looking deep into our life and bringing judgment into our life to purge the sin and address the issues. So this is a deadly serious business. Coming to the Lord's table should always be taken incredibly seriously. We should be sober-minded and humble as we approach the Lord's table. Let's consider quickly three questions that will help you put some pieces of the puzzle together. I always try to be mindful of people who may be coming into the church for the very first time. This is probably the most ritualistic-looking thing that we do as, as the church. And it must seem strange to the world around us the way we go through some of what we go through. Number one, what is the Lord's Supper? Simply stated, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience. God has commanded that we would do this, whereby members of the church, through eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, celebrate or memorialize the death of Jesus and anticipate his second coming. We'll say in a moment, we're looking back and we're looking within and we're looking forward. It's all about reminding ourselves of the sustaining grace that we find in Christ and in Christ alone. There's a great deal more that can be said there, but I I think saying more might create more confusion than anything else. What what is uh, necessary that you understand is that we are celebrating the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus that is necessary to our salvation in Jesus. Number two, who may participate in the Lord's Supper? Uh, You may not even think to ask this question, but it is an important question. I, I, think, I think there's a, a working understanding, especially in Bible Belt culture, that says that being a part of the church, that entrance into the church is a right that everyone enjoys. The idea that a, the church is a place, one, is problematic and not biblical, but two, the idea that it's a right that we all enjoy is equally unbiblical. Let me, let me say to you, if you are a guest here or if you are an unbeliever, nothing would thrill the soul of this pastor any more than to receive you by faith into the fellowship of this church today. Every person, I've never yet met a person who is not welcome at Longview Point Church. But I want you to know that admission into the body of Christ that is the church 
is not a right that you enjoy, nor a right that I enjoy. It is a privilege bought at an incredibly high price, namely by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We don't come as we decide we'll come. We don't come on our terms. We don't come carelessly or without caution. We come in fear and trepidation through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that we come. The Lord's table operates the same way. We have access to the table because we have been brought into the body that is the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only is this a legitimate question, it's an incredibly important question. Who may partake or participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Number one, first, you must be a Christian. You must be saved. You must have entrusted your soul to Jesus. You must have been born again. If you're going to participate in the Lord's Supper, which celebrates the sanctifying and sustaining grace of Jesus Christ, you must have tasted and experienced that indeed the Lord our God is good. You must be a believer. Secondly, you must be baptized. I think there's some degree of understanding that everyone who comes to the Lord's table must be saved. At least I hope there's at least the beginnings of that understanding, but I'm not sure that we think about the necessity of baptism in coming to the Lord's table. If the Lord's Supper is about celebrating the sanctifying and sustaining grace of God, it is not sensible to expect that we could rightly celebrate the sanctifying work of God in our life until we have rightly celebrated the saving work of God in our life. Y'all tracking with me this morning? So I know that there are times when there are people who are kept back from baptism because of anxiety or fears of various kinds, and I will always do everything within my power to ensure that anxiety or real stress with social settings like this do not inhibit people from following faithfully after Jesus. But at the same time, listen, I want us to be crystal clear. If you have come under the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have become the subject to Christ's authority over your life, baptism is not an option for you. It is an order from the king. Now, here's another area of our life where we've typically overreacted. Don't misunderstand me. Being baptized will not save your soul. There is no saving power in the baptismal water. But you cannot legitimately say that Jesus is Lord over my life if there is this gaping gap of disobedience where you have failed to come under his lordship in that particular area. That's, that's the initial step of faithfulness to what Jesus has commanded in our life. When we say that he's Lord, that's not, not just a polite title for him like sir or ma'am in today's day and age. When we say that Jesus is Lord, it means that he is the king over our life, that he is the boss, that he is in charge. He is the president of our soul, the king of every decision, the Lord of every choice. You don't get to do what you want to do anymore when Jesus is Lord of your life. We do what he commands of us. Now, there's a process whereby he's shaping and changing and molding and making our heart, and we hope that our will aligns itself with his, but there will be moments and times when you'll want to do something in direct defiance to what God's plan is. Do you know what you do then? You do what Jesus says. 
because, because he is the Lord of our life. You must be a believer. You must be a baptized believer. Number three, you must be in the fellowship of the church. Notice that I did not say you must be in the fellowship of this church. This morning, as we take of the bread and the cup, you don't have to be a member of Longview Point in order to celebrate with us the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior. You do need to be a Christian. You do need, do need to be a baptized Christian. And you do need to be in the fellowship of a church, but you don't have to be in the fellowship of the church. Uh, did I say that like I was supposed to say that? Am I good? Every now and then there's a lapse. You need to be in the fellowship of the church, meaning that you're actively involved in the life of some local church. Now, when you come to faith in Jesus, in an instant, you become a member of the church. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It doesn't matter what the sign out front says or what the denominational affiliation is. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And immediately upon your conversion, you become a member of that church. But the call of the gospel goes even deeper than that in that we are likewise called to be a member of the local church. You need to make yourself accountable to a local assembly of believers that is critically important to your faith walk. And you need to, you need to do that and address that in your life as a participant in the Lord's Supper. I didn't talk about this in the earlier service, but there is a sense in which we are not only celebrating the broken body and shed blood of our Savior in the Lord's table, we're also celebrating the communion that we enjoy as the saints of God in the fellowship of the Spirit that is ours through the broken body and the shed blood. It's a celebration not only of what Jesus does to sustain us and to keep us, it's a celebration of the fact that he has brought us together under the banner of the gospel. You need to be in the fellowship of the church. Number four, you must be in unity with the church. You really need to be in unity with the church. That, that is that your life accords with the lifestyle set forth in the scripture as pleasing to God. That means that you're not a member bent on stirring discord within your local church or within the church. In recent decades, we've come up with all kinds of adjectives to attach to Christian. Uh, the type of Christian that you might be. We, we even use this language sometimes within the context of the church. And, and typically, that's a, a well-meaning practice, but there are times when those additions that we make in describing a, a certain type of Christianity or a brand of Christianity are usually efforts at distorting or redefining the terms of Christianity. To be in unity with the church is to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called and the way we are to evaluate our walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called is against the standard of the scripture. This, this is where you go to find out if you're right or you're wrong. This, this is where we evaluate ourselves. This is the filter through which we run every decision we make to make a determination as to whether or not this would be pleasing to God. He has not changed the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of God is as good today for rebuking and correcting and challenging and shaping and molding us and equipping us for every good work as it was 2,000 years ago. And there's so much more that could be said there. You must be right with God to come to the Lord's table. And then lastly, 
you should only partake of the supper after self-examination and the confession of sin. Every person should approach the table with fear and humility. Confession of sin ought to be an established and expected part of our observance of the Lord's table, something that all of us walk through and process. The moments leading up to our celebration of the Lord's table should be among the most somber moments that we experience as a church family. Third and final question. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Now, it has a teaching uh, role in the church. We've talked about some of that. But, but just briefly here, the Lord's Supper is about looking back, it's about looking inward, and it's about looking forward. Looking back, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're looking back, and, and we're meditating on what Jesus did for us at the cross to save us from our sin and the sanctifying power of his death and resurrection. At the cross, Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath against us. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. The great exchange takes place. So that the Father treats Jesus as though he had lived our lives, so that he might justifiably treat us as though we have lived the life of Christ. This is a great burden that our Savior bears at the cross. I don't know that we do enough to think about the great burden that Jesus bears there. The sorrow, the anguish, the gravity of the moment, the great judgment, the bitterness of the cup he drank on our behalf. Jesus drank it every drop. Three times the Bible describes the fullness of God's judgment being poured out. The first of those being in Genesis, Genesis 6, when the flood of God's wrath destroys the world, save Noah and a handful of family members on an ark. All of creation drowns under the flood of God's wrath. The judgment of God that comes at the end of the age when the very elements of the world melt under the fire of God's wrath. And then at the crossroads of human history, when Jesus cries, it is finished, and the sky grows black, and the earth trembles, and Jesus drinks every last drop of the bitter cup of God's wrath against us. That is the gravity of what Jesus does for us at the cross. That's the weight that he bears in his breast as he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We look back to what Jesus has done for us. And we are mindful that what he does there is sufficient not only to save us, but to sustain us. The God who is able to save you, brothers and sisters, is able to keep you. The reason that you don't fall off the wagon, go back to your old ways, the reason you don't lose your salvation is not because you are holding so fast to God. It is because God is holding so fast to you. That's what Jesus has done for us. We look inward. Paul said, so a man should examine himself. We bow and we pray humbly, God, forgive us of our sins. 
We ask that God would examine us through the work of His Holy Spirit, that as our sin is brought to light, as the work of God's Spirit brings it before us, that we would freely let it go, that we would cheerfully walk away from the things of this life and this world to know a closer relationship with Jesus. We look inward, and then we look forward. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me and do it in anticipation of my promise return. As often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There, there is coming a day when the sky rolls back as a scroll, when you will see the Son of Man coming in the glory of the clouds. When Jesus gathers us to himself, cleansing and claiming us forevermore, Christ is coming. Christ is coming. We're reminded at the Lord's table that his broken body and shed blood is the down payment guarantee that his promise is always true. We look back, we look within ourselves, and we look forward. Are you, are you considering your sin, your need for grace, for saving and sanctifying and sustaining grace? We're, we're reminded at the Lord's table of how, how broken we are. At some point, in fact, at a couple of points, I've made mention of this, but I, th I think it's worth mentioning again. When it comes to celebrating the Lord's table, I, I have been cast in the past as being overly narrow, restrictive with regards to celebrating the Lord's Supper. You, who, who is that preacher to tell somebody they can't celebrate? I'm just telling you, if you fool around and take the Lord's table unworthily, you might get sick and die. So go on. <laughs> but but I, I, I want you to know further than that. I want you to know further than that. That if you strip the Lord's table of all of its prohibitions, then you are stripping the Lord's table of its teaching ability. The celebration of the Lord's Supper was an important part in my coming to understand my need for the gospel. I was in a Sunday evening service in a country church with my granny to my right and a godly couple to my left. And I heard that night, at least as, as best I know, I heard that night for the first time a clear and compelling presentation of the gospel. And then there was a celebration of the Lord's Supper at, at the end. And, and, and I was sort of drifting off as... 19-year-old boys are apt to do, and the bread came down the only aisle in the church, and, and granted, she just passed me right over. And I thought, well, I wasn't paying attention. And I really wasn't paying attention at the time. I didn't realize what she was doing until it was to the godly couple to my left. And I thought, well, I'll catch it on round two. And, uh, and not, not, it's not registering with me, you know. And, then, and, we, and, and they, they around me, they took the bread, and then the cup began to be passed, and, and granny passed me over with that plate. And in that moment, it registered for me for the first time in my life, there is a real difference between who I am spiritually and who my granny is in Jesus. That was the first time that that ever dawned on me. There, there was a tangible, observable distinction made between who I was and, and who she was by faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm just, I'm just telling you that honoring the Lord's table, as it's described in our passage is important not only for you personally, it's for the good of one sitting next to you who may not be in a spiritual position where they can come to the Lord's table. 
you don't do them any favors in assenting to their violating the teaching of the Scripture and encouraging them to do so. I want you to be reminded this morning, and I want you to think carefully and clearly about who you are and where you are in your journey with Jesus Christ. I know this is Mississippi, and I know everybody believes in Jesus. But I'm telling you, the Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble. I'm not asking about whether you assent to the historical facts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I'm asking you, have you been born again? Because until you have, you cannot come honorably to the table of our Savior.